All right. Well, good morning once again, beloved. I want to invite you to uh, open your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. We are in 1 Peter chapter 5, and this morning we'll be covering the final section of this great first epistle by Peter, verses 8 through 14. Now, last week we covered verses 5 through 7, as it is there where Peter begins to list off a a long list, a series of final imperatives. These are um, spiritual attitudes that are necessary um, for our sanctification as we grow and uh, mature in the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, as I was studying these verses, they appear to come out from Peter in almost like a rapid-fire succession um, as he closes out this letter. But I believe these are um, incredibly valuable for us and um, great building blocks as we learn to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, standing firm in his faith, in your faith, so at the proper time he may exalt you. So to begin this morning, I want to read our text together and then um, I'll do a, a quick review of the three attitudes we covered last week. Then we'll turn our attention to the last couple of verses as there is a gold mine of godly wisdom that really immediately applies to each of our lives. So to set the context, I actually want to start reading back in uh, verse 5 through 11 first, and then as we get closer to the end, um, we'll cover those remaining verses. So let's start by reading in 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 5. I am reading out of the ESV this morning, the English Standard Version. There should be one right in your pew there. And here now is the word of the living and true God. Peter says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. The uh, first attitude um, we see Peter mention is the attitude of submission. The attitude of submission. Verse 5. And again, this is just by way of review, so I'll be going through these somewhat quickly. Verse 5, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. And um, we talked about how submission has been really a, a regular theme in um, Peter's epistle. Um, he talks about submission in chapter 2, verse 13. In chapter 2, verse 18, a servant and his master. Chapter 3, verse 1, in the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands. And then now here again in chapter 5, in verse 5, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. 
And um, the word elders in verse 1 refers to those who shepherd the flock of God among you. And we see that in verse 2. They refer to pastors, elders, overseers. Those are all the same word that's used. And what is their purpose? They are to shepherd. They are to tend. They are to feed the flock of God. They are the ones who are called, verse 3, to be an example to the flock, to exercise oversight, verse 2, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Verse 4, elders must also humble themselves uh, under the chief shepherd, for when he appears, Hebrews 13, 17 tells us that they will give an account as those keeping watch over your souls. And we saw last week all throughout the New Testament that all the flock is to appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and who give you instruction that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. But here in 1 Peter 5, 5, he speaks specifically to those who are younger, be subject to the elders. And this is just a fundamental spiritual attitude for all of us. The attitude of submission. And we covered that at great lengths last week. The second attitude um, we considered goes hand in hand with the first one, and that is the attitude of humility. The attitude of humility. We see this in the rest of verse 5 and in verse 6. Peter continues, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. So you will notice in verse 5 that we are to have humility toward one another. And then in verse 6, we are to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. So humility in relation to others, humility in relation to God. Now, that word for humility means um, lowliness of mind. And describes the attitude of one who willingly serves even in the lowest, the lowliest of tasks. And we see this um, most clearly pictured, and we looked at this last week, in the life and death of the Lord Jesus Christ. For example, Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. Same word. Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of of the cross. So attitude uh, number one was submission. Attitude number two is humility. And the third attitude we noted last week is the attitude of trust. As we endure humbly and submissively, we find our strength in the midst of trials by means and confident trust in God's perfect purpose. Notice what Peter says there in verse 7. He says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. 
in submission and in humility, we learn to trust the God who really does care for us. Really does care for us. Trusting in the God who loves you, trusting in the God who has the power to do something about that love he has for you. In Psalm chapter 37, verse 5, David tells us to commit your ways to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will do it. That's important. We first commit it to God, trusting that God knows best. God knows best. We like to think we know best. God knows best, and trust that to God. Now let's move to our verses for today. And starting in verse 8, we find the fourth attitude. And again, I think these all apply to our spiritual maturity, the, the sanctification work of the Holy Spirit in our lives um, as we feed on the Word of God. And the fourth attitude is an attitude of self-control. Self-control. Certainly, this is spoken to at length um, as, a, um, as for elders to have self-control. But um, notice how in, in verse 8 he begins. Peter says, be sober-minded. Let's just stop right there for a moment because this is the point I don't want you to miss. He says, be sober-minded. Um, this isn't the first time Peter used this phrase. You'll recall it was back in um, chapter 1 in verse 13. He said, prepare your minds for action, being sober-minded. And then actually again in uh, chapter 4 in verse 7, Peter said, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now, what does that really mean, sober-minded? Well, it's the verb nateful, and it can be used in reference to um, not being intoxicated, being sober um, of mind. Um, that would be the, the literal use to be sober. Um, but here, and almost um, most often in the New Testament, um, it's used figuratively. And it refers to having um, clear judgment um, or really presence of mind. It means to be in control and having the priorities of life in their proper order. The priorities of life in their proper order. It requires discipline of mind and discipline of body that avoids the intoxicating allurements of the world. And it starts with a well-disciplined thought life. For example, in First um, Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 6, Paul says, Let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. And, and here he's talking about being on the alert. Keep awake, verse 7. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. And again, Paul's calling for the same attitude that Peter um, is calling for. Um, don't be asleep at the wheel. Um, be on alert. Um, be ready and prepared in all seasons. Be equipped to make sound judgments. Be in the right presence of mind. Be equipped to make decisions that um, rightly align with God's will. And these are attitudes of having self-control. I'd be amiss if I did not read Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed 
by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Colossians 3 verse 2 says it this way, set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on the earth. So again, this is uh, what sober-minded means, to, to have self-control, discipline, to have the priorities of, of your life in their proper order. Our fifth spiritual attitude is um, right along the same lines as number four, um, and we'll call it spiritual alertness. Be on the alert. Notice what uh, Peter says next in, in verse eight. Continuing, he says, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So the reason we must cultivate the attitudes of submission, um, humility, trust, um, self-control, alertness, is because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So Peter says, be watchful, be on the alert. And uh, let's not kid ourselves into thinking that just because we strongly trust in God's um, almighty hand that we can just live carelessly and lazy and let down our, car, um, our guards um, or we'll become victims of the enemy, the outside forces that come against us, um, demand us to be on the alert. So Peter says, be watchful. Be watchful. Don't sleep as others do. Now, the question becomes, what should we be watchful for? Well, um, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, and so also his servants. Um, he rarely shows himself for who he truly is. He almost always maps himself as a, a religious personality. Antichrist isn't necessarily anti against Christ. It's more like, I want to be like Christ. A false Christ versus uh, anti against in that sense. He attempts to imitate Christ. But let's find out more about him so we can be on alert and better identify the adversary's tactics. Um, notice there in verse 8, he is your adversary. Uh, your adversary, very personal designation, by the way. Um, the word adversary is a uh, legal term in the Greek. Um, it means like a, a, a legal opponent. Um, think of him walking in the courtroom, and as he walks in, he's your lying accuser. Okay, He, he stalks you prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He is called here your adversary, the devil. Diabolos is the word in the Greek. It means slanderer, someone who falsely accuses. His aim is to sow discord in the body of Christ, to break up the fellowship, to accuse men before God, to undermine your confidence in salvation, to silence your confession of faith, to distract you from the truth and the purity of the gospel. When Peter says the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, 
seeking someone to devour, that means he wants to destroy you. Jesus said the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Now, how does he go about doing this? <clears throat> well, three times in John's Gospel, um, Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world. Now, Jesus is the King of kings, Lord of lords, but what he meant was right now the devil rules the, the worldly, unregenerate system I was talking about earlier um, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one, lies under the sway of the evil one. So it's not that you have to come necessarily in contact with him personally or individually um, to fall prey to him. Um, no, he's orchestrating an entire um, world system around you, both seen and unseen, which can devour you. In Ephesians 2, verse 2, Paul calls Satan the prince of the power of the air. And the power of the air means the supernatural um, demonic power um, that exists in our universe. He commands that. Um, so he commands the uh, cosmos, the, the worldly system. And then he's also the prince of the power there, which speaks to the, the demonic realm as well. And so individually and through his demons and, and through the system, the, the unregenerate people he is um, using, he is using all these as he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And that statement, by the way, is reminiscent of what we see in the life of Job, the, the story of Job, isn't it? Um, you'll recall in um, Job's story in chapter 1 that Satan um, comes into the presence of the Lord and the Lord said to uh, Satan in verse 7, from where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. And that's what Peter's speaking to. Satan's prowling around, seeking someone to devour. So the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? <laughs> you want to try to chew on him and see if he'll go down? You want to try to devour Job? For there's no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Satan says, let me have him. Let me have him, and I'll show you how strong his faith is. God says, go ahead, have at it. And you know the story. Um, no matter what happened in um, Job's uh, life, Satan could not destroy his faith in God. Job said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Job said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And the Lord did. He allowed everything to be taken from Job, didn't he? Everything he owned, his property, all of his animals, his wealth, he took away all of his children. The only thing the Lord left was his wife, and all she kept telling him to do was to curse God already and die. So Satan even used her uh, against him, and yet Job remained blameless in the sight of God. But you see, that's Satan's ploy. This is Satan's ploy to prowl around like a roaring lion seeking someone 
to devour. Um, Satan's goal is to devastate the believer. Um, he doesn't worry about unbelievers, I don't think. He already possesses them. He, he's really not too worried about them. Rather, he's prowling around looking for someone like Job who names the name of God. Now, even though he can't take away their salvation, he can destroy their life by ruining their testimony and by rendering them fruitless for the kingdom of God. And that's his aim. And so Peter says, you better be watchful. You better be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You have a personal adversary, an enemy, the slanderer, the destroyer, who is moving all over the earth with one goal in mind, to find people who name the name of Christ, and he wants to tear them to shreds. Think about that. You better be on the alert. Now, the question I want to answer um, briefly is, how do we deal with that? How do we deal with it? Because, you know, um, especially today, we have people running around and claiming that, that they're binding Satan left and right. And what does that even mean? Um, do I have the authority to say, Satan, in the name of Jesus, I bind you, and whoop, he's bound? For how long is he bound for? If I can do that, then why don't we just bind him permanently? Um, you do realize there are people in Matthew 7 who will say, Lord, Lord, have we not cast out demons in your name? And he says to them what? I never knew you. Who are you? Who are you? Now, Satan will be bound one day. We read in Revelation chapter 20, verse 1, it says, Then I saw an angel, and this is a vision from John, coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. So before that binding and after that binding, he is loose. There is no reason to assume anything else. Now, Jesus does give the apostles in Matthew 16 the authority to bind and to loose, to speak, and to act under God's authority as the foundational representatives for the church. He sure did. Um, but they did not act arbitrarily. They did not operate apart from the Holy Spirit. Um, this is, I think, misapplied teaching um, with the binding of Satan. Um, I just don't see how that scripturally works itself all the way out. Like I said, if we can bind him, why won't we just bind him permanently? Um, there's no scriptural command for it, nor is there any biblical examples of the practice. Satan remains at large as the prince of the power of the air. We just read Ephesians 2.2, 2, until he is bound and chained by an angel, not by a human being, during the thousand-year reign of Christ. The disciples do cast out demons, but they're never binding um, Satan. There's a lot of people who reference Matthew 16 saying, hey, whatever I bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. 
Therefore, in the name of Jesus, I bind you, Satan. And, you know, I just humbly ask this. You know, if Jesus gave this authority to Peter, and then by extension, uh, us, the church, then why didn't Peter use it and just say to these persecuted believers, yeah, your adversary, I bound him. He no longer prowls around anymore. You don't have to worry about him. That's not what he wrote. No, only the Lord Jesus Christ himself has the power and the authority to bind Satan. For after all, Satan is under the sovereign hand of God. And so Peter says, in the meantime, we best be watchful. We best be on the alert. Because your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Now, if we're not able to bind Satan, then how do we deal with him? What do we do? Well, verse 8 says we must be on the alert, have a sober mind, be watchful of your surroundings, watchful of those relationships, watchful how you rub shoulders with the world, watch who and what is influencing you. Take stock of uh, potential temptations. And then, number six, we need fortitude. We need fortitude. We need to stand firm in our faith. Notice in verse 9 how Peter says we are to deal with our adversary. He says, resist him. Resist him. James 4, verse 7, says it this way, resist the devil and he will what? Flee from you. Resist him. This word for resist means to withstand, to, to stand up against. And you might be thinking about, how do I do that? Notice what Peter says next in verse 9. Firm in your faith. How do you deal with your adversary, the devil, uh, mystically, by chanting some mantra, uh, by saying, Satan, in Jesus' name, I bind you? No, resist him firm in your faith. Listen, you've got this formidable enemy prowling around. He wants to chew you up and spit you out. He is the destroyer. How are you going to deal with him? Resist them. By what means? Standing firm in your faith. Firm in the promises of God. That's the issue. Turn for a moment to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. This will be helpful for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 <coughs> in verse 3. Second Corinthians 10, verse 3, Paul says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. So, okay, we don't do spiritual battle with, with man-made ideas or, or weapons. Verse 4 says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And what are they? Verse 5 tells us we destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And there's the key. This is how we destroy 
arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and what God has spoken. So we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. For when we know the truth and when we obey the truth, we resist the devil and he will have no choice but to flee from you. For as we draw near to God, James 4, 8 says, He will draw near to you. And then the key passage. Turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10. This really gets down to the specifics. As Paul describes the armor of God. You know, we're in an army. We're in God's army. We are called soldiers. And this is what he outfits us with. Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord. And in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God. That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm, stand. And, and there's that same concept again. Stand firm firm beloved but but how do we stand firm verse 14 stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness verse 15 and as shoes for your feet having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end keep alert with all perseverance making supplication for all the saints there it is beloved the whole armor of God. The helmet of salvation, that's your heavenly assurance, protecting your mind, your thoughts. The breastplate of righteousness imputed by Christ at Calvary's Hill for us. The belt of truth which girds up our loins to run the race that we have been called. Your shoes prepared with the readiness of the gospel of peace. And in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith which extinguishes all the flaming darts, the accusations of your adversary, the devil. And then our lone offensive weapon, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And in it all, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, which is our dependence on Christ. And to that end, Paul says, keep alert 
with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. That's how we resist, beloved, by trusting in God and standing your ground in the armor of God. And then Peter adds this word of assurance, so beautiful in verse 9. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. What's Peter talking about here? He's saying, in the middle of this persecution, you're not alone. You're not alone. You're really not. The whole brotherhood, the whole family of God is going through this to one degree or another as we share in Christ sufferings I know sometimes you feel like you're all alone but your brethren throughout the world are experiencing the same kind of suffering so what will we do we will resist the devil stand firm in our faith we will take up the full armor of God that you may be able to withstand him in the day of evil and having done all that stand stand trusting in Christ praying at all times in the spirit keeping alert with all perseverance, taking every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ as we let our commando fight the battle that he has already won. So Peter, really, he's just like, hey, guys, let's get back to the basics. These are, are just basic, fundamental attitudes that we should all be a part of. Next on his list is the seventh attitude, an attitude of hope. An attitude of hope, and of course, you know, we could have named this whole series The Living Hope, after the Lord Jesus Christ. But this attitude of, of hope is, is really wonderful in verse 10. Notice what it says. Peter says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Peter begins to close out his epistle with the assurance that the outcome of our life rests more on God's power and grace than on our labors. We can start to see less and go, oh, I got to do this, I got to do that, I, me, 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 me. <laughs> This is good news, beloved. This is really good news. And it is the hope and confidence that we have in Christ. First of all, Peter is saying, in the eternal scheme of things, this suffering you're experiencing is just a little while. Just a little while. It may seem intense. It may even seem like a long time to you, but it's, it's really brief. Just a little while. And he used the same statement a little while back in chapter 1 verse 6 when he says in this talking about our salvation you greatly rejoice though now for a little while if necessary you've been grieved by various trials but know this peter says the god of all grace ah oh, just feel the grace wash over you the god of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. This is speaking here of his effectual call as he will himself restore, 
confirm, strengthen, and establish you. After all, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Nothing can change that. God has promised you, if you are in Christ, this grace already, this grace for eternity. This grace isn't given and then taken away. Or, but here, His grace, yes, is speaking certainly for eternity. He's talking about the eternal glory in Christ. But He's also providing it to you as a reminder in the present as well, in your time of suffering, as He will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Just a couple of notes about this wonderful verse. The God of all grace who called you, as I mentioned, speaks of the effectual call in the believer's life. John chapter 10, 3 through 4, the words of our Lord. The sheep hear the good shepherd's voice, and he calls his own sheep by name. The good shepherd goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. So the God of all grace calls his own. He has called you, if you have ears to hear, to his eternal glory in Christ. And then what about those last four words there at the end of verse 10? Well, they're essentially synonymous. Restore means to, to bring wholeness to or to perfect Confirm means to fix firmly or to establish. Strengthen means to make strong again. And to establish you means to lay down a firm foundation. They, they all speak of strength and, and resoluteness. And that's what God wants to do in your life through the spiritual battles that you're experiencing. These four promises ought to encourage you in the spiritual battle. God is with you in the battle. And he promises he will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Personal. 1 John chapter 3, 2-3, the apostle writes, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be, but we know that when He appears, the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope, this hope fixed on him, purifies himself just as he is pure. Well, that leads to number eight in an attitude of worship, and these are going to come out fast at the end here. Hang on. Verse 11, Peter just bursts forth into a doxology. He says, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. I love that. He said back in, in chapter 4, verse 11, that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter's just overwhelmed by this, and this too introduces us in an indirect way, to another right attitude, and that's an attitude of worship, a heart posture of worshiping God. Throughout this whole series of verses, we've been getting into the deep things of God, 
He's put it in front of us that we are to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. That we're to cast all of our cares upon him because he cares for you. He's powerful and yet so compassionate. No wonder why Peter says, give him all the praise. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Therefore, we can say the heart of the Christian must always be filled with praise so that we give him all of the glory. He has the dominion and power and authority as the sovereign one. He is worthy of our praise. That's the worshiper's heart. And by the way, this word dominion here, it means might and strength. And it speaks of God's ability to dominate. He's the, the dominant one. Nothing is beyond his control. Not our suffering, not Satan, not the demons, or the entire fallen world system. Nothing is beyond his control, and we can worship him for that. God's got it all under control. And then Peter comes to his final greeting, a conclusion as he draws this epistle to an end. And he mentions two attitudes. First, we see the attitude of faithfulness. And here I think Peter picks up the pen himself in verse 12. He's probably been writing through a scribe, and now it appears that he grabs the pen himself in his own hand, and he mentions an attitude of faithfulness. Verse 12, by Sylvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. There's no reason to assume that this is anyone other than Silas, although that was a somewhat common name, but very likely uh, the same Silas who traveled with Paul and is mentioned in his epistles. He's called a prophet according to Acts chapter 15, 32 through 33. A Roman citizen according to Acts 16. We know we know about Silas. Silas may well have been the one who wrote down Peter's words for him, or perhaps he's, he's taken the letter and preached it to the churches. But Peter calls him a faithful brother as I regard him. He, he's highly respected and faithful to Peter and God's work. And we can say, having gone through this little short five-chapter epistle, Peter's been faithful as well. Peter's been faithful to God as well. And he says in it, I've been exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. I love that. He says, I've been telling you about God's grace, his saving, sanctifying grace, his grace that's gone through trials, his grace that has come through sufferings, and I want you to stand firm in his grace. That's what he's saying here. And then he adds one final virtue that we'll call an attitude of love. An attitude of love in verses 13 and 14. Close this great little letter. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to you all who are in Christ. Peter closes his epistle not by commanding the attitude of love, 
but by personally illustrating it. Right? His love for the believers in the church in Rome here, he calls uh, likely for safekeeping she who is at Babylon. The female term um, for the churches are common. Rome is referred to as Babylon in Revelation 17 and 18. That seems like the proper translation here. In times of persecution, the um, writers um, took unusual care not to endanger other Christians to whom they were writing letters to. Peter, who mentions persecution in nearly every chapter of this epistle, himself died a martyr's death near Rome. It's possible since Peter wrote this epistle, near the end of his life, he was probably staying in the um, imperial city. But he very well could be saying the saints of the Roman church chosen together with you also sends you greetings. Almost uh, tongue-in-cheek how Paul ends the book of Philippians. And he says, yeah, just so you know, the uh, Caesar's guard says, hello. <laughs> it might look like I'm up in chains in here, but God's changing hearts in here. And so he might be saying here, the church is strong in the Lord here in Rome. Don't worry about us. Don't worry about us. Either way, it drips of godly love and affection for one another. And then he says, and so does Mark, my son. Now this is, again, likely Peter's um, spiritual son, not his actual son, Mark, called John Mark, is mentioned in Acts chapter 12. 12, he accompanied Paul and, and stayed with him during the apostles' time in prison in Rome. Um, tradition indicates that Peter helped him write the gospel of Mark. Um, that when Mark wrote the gospel, Peter was there to assist him. That's pretty uh, well believed. But what stands out here is the love and affection these men shared for the church. He says in verse 14, greet one another with the kiss of love. An outward sign of affection often mentioned in the New Testament. And Peter closes his epistle by saying, peace to all of you who are in Christ. Well, that's the end of this great first epistle. We'll pick up 2 Peter um, next week and continue on. Um, I'll just close with this thought. There are really no shortcuts um, to a Christian mind um, possessing these godly attitudes and motives that Peter has outlined to close this letter. Um, they will be perfected only as believers regularly and faithfully study God's word or place themselves under the clear and persuasive teaching and preaching of God's truth and obediently allow God's word to change their hearts and minds. The worldly system is throwing everything it can at you in these last days to distract you from the truth. Every bit of the world that you allow to occupy a space in your mind a way that is shut off to God's truth because the world will have none of what God says. So, as Paul said in chapter Romans chapter 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing, we must test all the spirits, test all of it against the word of God, test what I say. Testing, you may discern what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Remember, Satan and his minions disguise themselves 
as angels of light. Angels of light. James 4 says, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. If you're in need of prayers this morning, I want to invite you. You're welcome to come forward, or um, as we mentioned before, stay after with Sister Elizabeth. She would also be happy to pray with you. And please stand as we sing the song of invitation. God really does love us.